it, uh, it was a bad day, a horrible bad day. One of those days where you feel the clouds coming in, those dark gray clouds, and you realize it's not just for a day, it's not just for a season. It might be like this forever. The bad guys had won, convincingly. And a group of young nobles, both young men and women, were chained together and marched 900 miles away to the place where the conquering army called home. The most beautiful women were thrown into the conquering king's harem, and the best of the best young men were castrated and then trained to be put into the service of this damnable, evil, demon-worshiping king. Seventy years later, he looked back on his life and he penned an autobiography. It was so powerful and so full of wisdom that God said, print it and put it in my library. Today we call that library a Bible because thanks to Gutenberg, we can carry it around in a book. Uh, thanks to Jobs, we can now carry it around on our phone and all kinds of other things. But it's actually a library of 66 books, a series of scrolls. And God said, I want this in my library. That a man has written it, but I have supervised it. It is my word. It is, it is not just helpful for now, but it is helpful for all eternity. His name, perhaps you've heard of, and the name of his book is Daniel. And he wrote that book because his whole story and everything was so different than anybody would have ever expected as he is chained together with this whole group and they're all walking along. I mean, this is the least likely to succeed person if you were to look at it. But 70 years later in the rearview mirror, those dark clouds were simply rain that was coming to clear out all the garbage that was in the air and the garbage that was everywhere else. And God had laid down an incredible story that no one would have ever guessed from the beginning. But unfortunately, you've probably heard of him, Daniel, famous for Daniel in the lion's den and all of that. Unfortunately, Daniel's book is so misunderstood these days. I had the privilege of growing up in a Christian home, so I went to Sunday school. I didn't become a Jesus follower in, in, until the, towards the end of my high school years. I was the black sheep of the family, but at least I was exposed to the truth and the stories and all of, all of that. And, and, and Daniel, in my mind, was an incredible adventure story. In our little Sunday school classes, we taught it every single year. I bet by fourth grade, I could have taught it pretty well myself, you know? And, 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 and I assumed that the primary message of Daniel, if you're familiar with it at all, is this. If you will take a courageous stand for God, yes, sir. Yes, sir. the lions will lose their hunger. If you will stand up for God and you are thrown in the fiery furnace like his three friends are, you will live. That ain't the lesson, friends. Because if that's the lesson, God has an awful lot of explaining to do, does he not? Because everybody else who's been thrown to hungry lions did not find them suddenly go on a high-carb diet. <laughs> and everybody else thrown into the furnace died. 
See, Daniel was not written as an adventure story for children. It wasn't written to tell us that if we just do the right thing, we will always win in the short term. We will always win in the long term. Daniel, God said, print it because it's a primer. It's a lesson for adults on how to not just survive, but how to thrive in our Babylons. And we all have Babylons. You know, our Babylon can be the workplace we're in. It's just incredibly ungodly, and we're trying to live for God, and man, it, 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 it's swimming upstream to do that here. It can be uh, an extended family situation. It can be a, a, a community. It can be a, a, a homeowners association. It can be a, a government. It can be a nation. There's all kinds of things that are our Babylons, but what I want you to understand is before we look at what were Daniel's secrets to surviving, I want you to understand how dark his Babylon was. Because did you know that in the Bible, Babylon is the personification, is the word picture for the most evil culture of all time? Okay? There has never been a more wicked place. Now, how do I know that? Well, because in the book of Revelation, the last book in our Bible, uh, where where, uh, some things are described about what are going to happen, we're told that when the angels find out that it's finally time for Jesus to return... They cry out with great joy, fallen, fallen is Babylon. Well, Babylon hasn't existed for millenniums. It was eventually destroyed as God's judgment upon it. He said it would never be rebuilt. It hasn't been rebuilt. It won't be rebuilt. So why are they not up there going, fallen, fallen is ISIS. Fallen, fallen is Nazi Germany. Fallen, fallen is Sodom and Gomorrah. Fallen, fallen. You can go on and on. Because the most evil, godless nation that ever existed an environment to try to serve God in was Babylon. And yet he not only survived, he thrived. How did he do it? Well, if you got a Bible with you, I know we're going to put the verses up on the screen, but if you got a Bible with you, I, I encourage you to uh, turn to it so you can mark it up. I hope you treat your Bible as a life textbook, you know? It's not designed to keep the coffee table from floating away. Uh, <laughs> It's, uh, and you will not go to hell if you mark in it. You know, it's, it's a life textbook. And uh, it's not just a motivational book we stand on a stage and teach you from. It's a book you need to refer to or you, a digital device, pull it up and under it. Because there's going to be a few key phrases I'm going to want to make sure you are able to follow here. So we're going to begin. And today what I'm going to do is we're just going to walk through the first chapter of Daniel. So find Daniel. Uh, if you're brand new at all of this stuff, besides the verses up here, God put a table of contents in front of the Bible. Makes it easy to find. Search function. Thank you, Jesus. Okay. But we're going to walk through uh, every verse in chapter one of Daniel, and we're going to see these four traits, and I'm going to leave you with an assignment. And my assignment is simply this, that during this next week, read through the entire book of Daniel with the lens that I'm giving you today. And you will see these things happening over and over and over. And they are secrets to his ability to thrive. And the first one is simply this. It is a trait called optimism. He was hopeful. The biblical word is hope. And not like we use hope. Well, I kind of hope the weather's good. I hope the team wins. No, I hope with such certainty I'm putting everything on it. 
Our blessed hope is that Jesus is going to return. And that's why I use the word optimism. No matter how dark it got, he knew what was going on. So let's read these couple of first verses, which, by the way, to my shame, I have to say as a pastor, I taught through Daniel even a couple times as a young pastor, and I, I just skipped right through the most important part of the book of Daniel. <laughs> because I want to get on to the adventure story, you know? Like, like you know, just who reads the foreword of a book? You know, let's just go on. <laughs> But as he's looking back on his life, in these first two verses, he's saying, this is the most important thing you got to understand because everything I thought, everything I did, every behavior I had flowed out of the foundation of these two things. Here we go. Daniel 1. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and he besieged it. And the Lord delivered, stop, right there. Highlight, underline that, do not miss it. It is the key to everything that follows. The Lord delivered Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand. Who delivered it? Talk to me. The Lord, right? Along with some articles from the temple of God. And these he carried off to the temple of his God, his demon god Baal, in Babylon, and he put him in the treasure house of his God. So let me help you understand what's going on here. The bad guys are besieging Jerusalem. And God says, in light of a whole series of things, we might have the time for a couple of them later on, but basically he says, I'm going to let the bad guys win for a while. And I am the one who is delivering and I am the one who was allowing this guy to raid the temple of the holy God, take things out of that temple, take him all the way back to Babylon, put him in the temple of Baal to mock the God most high. And who is the one who allowed that? Talk to me. God. Because without an understanding of what I'm, I'm, I'm laboring on right now, nothing Daniel does makes sense. But when we understand the key principle behind his optimism, everything he does makes sense. And what I've discovered in my life, uh, the life of the people I have the privilege of ministering to in San Diego and even nationally when I do things, is, is that many of us say the words that God is sovereign, but we don't really believe God is sovereign. Okay. Daniel did. And in the worst of the worst situations, that shaped everything he did. Here's the principle. He knew. He knew that even in Babylon, God is in control of who's in control. Right? Now, that doesn't mean he liked it. That doesn't mean Nebuchadnezzar suddenly good. That doesn't mean anything like that. It simply means Daniel knew as a young man, probably about 15 to 17 years old when all this happened, that the short-term success of the wicked is sometimes God's will in the marketplace. In that family dispute you're going through, that broken family, in, the, in the, the finances, in the political world, and that you name whatever it is, that class you're taking, that the, the professor is absolutely unreasonable. There's a million Babylons we're in. He says, God's not up there going, oh my gosh, Gabriel, help, help. Me. What's happening here? I forgot. <laughs> you see, panic and despair are never from God. Now, 
concern and worry. The Apostle Paul talks about being depressed. Jesus was uh, said, uh, I, I am so filled with angst uh, that I am troubled in spirit. We would call that, you know, shook up. Uh, in the Garden of Gethsemane, sweat as it were, great drops of blood. So a sense of emotion, a sense of fear, a sense of worry, all of those things. But when they control us, is a very different thing than when we struggle with them. Yeah. Hugely different. And when we know God's in control, we're confused. We're troubled. We're extrapolating in our head all the things that could be happening. But in the back of it, we keep going, yeah, but I know. I know what I know. I know what I know. I know what I know. You know, as a pastor, I often get asked to teach through the book of Revelation. And uh, I've been at this thing uh, for uh, 40 years. And so I've watched all kinds of everybody convinced Jesus is coming back. Whoops, he didn't. He's coming back. Whoops, he did. You know, over and over. And, 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 and so, so what had, by the way, it's been going on for 2,000 years. Uh, you know, but when they want me to teach through the book of Revelation, they don't really want me to teach through the book of Revelation. They want me to tell them who the Antichrist is and when Jesus is coming back. And I have to tell them, I don't know. I am not on the programming committee. Okay, I'm on the welcoming committee. I got, I got the balloons and the confetti. I got it ready, baby. And I might be passing on my great, 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 great grandson. I have no idea, but you know, he's, he's coming back. I don't know when. But I have read the book. And I don't know if you do this, but I peeked at the end. Did you know we win? Did you know we win? And if I know we win, who cares what the score is in the third quarter? Right? It changes everything. I want to tell you a little story about that. Now, you got to give me grace. I know where I am. And, um, but I, it's my dad's fault. But I grew up a USC football fan. Okay, now give me some, God bless you. <laughs> it's been a tough decade, hasn't it? Uh, but let me tell you, you know, he took me to every game as, as a little kid. And uh, long ago, far away in another galaxy, SC was really good. Um, and, and during that time, they were on a winning streak. Uh, it looked like they were going to win three straight national championships, 30 straight games. Uh, and they, but they were playing in the middle of the season, their arch rival. Now, a lot of people who don't know USC football think it's UCLA. UCLA's important game, Stanford's important game. No, the most important game for a USC is the Notre Dame game. Two national programs with national championships, Heisman Trophy winners, all that. that is the game you want to win. Now, that year going in, they played at Notre Dame, and uh, both teams were undefeated, but on paper, SC had a much stronger team. By the end of the season, it was true. But SC was also incredibly fast. So the groundskeeper at Notre Dame allowed the grass to grow. And if you watch an old film of that game, the grass had grown so high you couldn't see the player's shoes. That was kind of a way to slow down the speed. If you know anything about sports, if you don't take an opportunity to crush your opponent and you let him up off the mat, as it were, you do that a couple of times, bad stuff's going to happen. Now, I'm watching that game at home. And SC squanders opportunity after opportunity. They're ahead, but barely. And it's like, this is not going well. And sure enough, with two minutes left, Notre Dame marches down the field to get the go-ahead touchdown. 
the place goes nuts. You know, everybody's all excited, and I'm like, I'm not that upset yet. I've read Daniel. No. <laughs> I know God's a Trojan. You know, maybe something will happen. Maybe they'll run it back, march down the field. But no, the kickoff goes through the end zone. They start at the 20-yard line. A first play, make five or six yards. The next, uh, next play, a Notre Dame lineman breaks through and throws Matt Liner at the USC quarterback for a 13-yard loss. And now it's like, you know, 93 yards to go, seconds left on the clock. And the announcers are all talking about the end of the winning streak. The crowd's going nuts. The players are chest bumping. The stupid leprechaun's going across the field. <laughs> and I lose my sanctification. <laughs> I've got to preach two Saturday night services in just a little few hours. And I, I'm in no mood. God's going to strike me dead. I'm, a, I'm uttering all those Christian euphemisms, you know, and ready to throw something at the TV, but it's a brand new big screen, so I think better of it. And then long story short, on fourth and a gazillion yards, the SC quarterback fades back, throws the ball, just gets over the fingertips of the defensive back, nestles into a receiver's hands, runs it to the one-yard line, and on the final play of the game, order is restored in the universe. <laughs> I go and preach, God doesn't strike me dead, thus I'm here today. <laughs> now, here's a weird thing. I have a tape of that game. I watch it mm, once a week. Make, no, no. <laughs> I've watched it a few times. And when I come to the point <coughs> where Matt Leinart is thrown for the 13-yard loss, and all is lost, the end of the season, the chest bumping, the leprechaun, all that stuff, I'm watching the exact same thing but guess what I do? I play it in slow motion. And then I play it again. I think it's so cute, the little leprechaun dude. You have no idea what's happening next. I'm watching the same thing. There's only one difference. What is it? Do you know the end? Do your family members know you know the end? Do the people you work with know you know the end? Does a fly on the wall that's watching how you respond and how you react to things that do they, would they go, oh yeah, they know how it ends, or would they go, oh, they're Larry watching it in live time? Optimism. You see, once you have that, now you can do what Jesus says in the New Testament for us to do and God said in the Old Testament to do, the counterintuitive next three things. We're going to move through them quicker. But the next three things I would never, ever do because they make no sense unless I know I win. Okay? Like, why would I do that? So the second thing we find as we move on in this passage at the speed of an arthritic snail is <laughs> wisdom. Daniel had incredible wisdom. And if you're a note taker, write down the wisdom to pick his battles wisely. Let's see this take place. Then the king ordered Asphanaz, chief of the court officials, to bring into the king's service some of the Israelites from the royal family and nobility. And I love his humility as he describes the kind of guys that were taken. Young men without any physical defect, handsome, showing aptitude for every kind of learning, well-informed, quick to understand, and qualified to serve in the king's palace, if I say so myself. 
And what was the deal? He was to teach them the language and literature of the Babylonians. We're going to see later for three-year course. You know what the language and literature of the Babylonians was? Astrology and the occult. Three-year course in the astrology and the occult. Now, God clearly said, you don't practice those things. But lo and behold, God didn't say you can't know about those things. Big difference. So the king also, in verse 5, assigned them a daily amount of food and wine from the king's table. And they were to be trained for three years. And after that, they were to enter the king's service. Don't miss this. They're being trained in astrology in the cult, and then he's going to be in the administration of Nebuchadnezzar with the assignment to help this dude succeed. Like, what? Then, verse 6, among those who were chosen were some from Judah, Daniel, Hananiah, Michelle, and Azariah. The chief official gave them new names to Daniel, which means God is my judge. Then he gave the new name Belshazzar, which means Baal, that demon god's prince. It's like your name is Christian, and they change your name to Satan's prince. Okay? That's what it would be like to us. Tananiah, Shadrach, to Meshach, Meshach, and Azariah, Abednego. And guess what? He just let it roll. We're going to find out he didn't sit in the back and throw spit wads. He sat in the front row, took copious notes, and graduated number one in his class in astrology and the cult. We're going to find out. He said, call me anything you want. As long as it ain't late to dinner, I'll be there. And we're going to find out he served a pagan demon god so well, he kept getting promoted over and over. Any of you ever been a boss or promoted? You don't promote people who don't like you, don't respect you, and don't help you. But Daniel got promoted over and over to higher and higher levels, which is why he was able to lead Nebuchadnezzar to a knowledge of the true, uh, uh, true God and lead three revivals in most godless of places. He could have never done that. Wow. So, but here's the thing. God said, don't do these things. God had never said, don't know about them. I would rather have a name that honors God, but there's no Bible verse that says you can't have a name that doesn't honor God. You see where I'm going with this? And today we make an issue about everything. We call everything a slippery slope. And, and, and we think we're being courageous and standing up for God. And what we are doing is actually undercutting our ability to have influence because we think God needs our help instead of we need to run his place. Okay? The wisdom to pick our battles. So, and man, this goes everywhere. Trying to raise your children in a culture that sometimes is a bit confusing. Man, when you draw a line everywhere you will end up with your kids running out of that line everywhere. Like we got to learn to pick our battles wisely. And again, I would never do it. I, I would take a stand on everything if I didn't know how the game ends. So I'm kind of like a quarterback. You know, uh, they, they audibleize, they change the play based on what the defense is in front of them. Well, when God is calling the plays, if he says run this way and there's 11 guys on this side of the field, I still run those 11. Maybe he wants me to lose five yards, five yards, five yards, and then a trick play pass over here and we get the touchdown. I don't know what he's doing. But I can't start calling audibles. I need a Bible verse for it. And we certainly can't fight with one another over our preferences and those things where there isn't a Bible verse. Now, we can't all do the same thing. 
You can't, in, old, in uh, biblical days, you can't never eat meat offered to idols, eat meat offered to idols, and fill in with ever modern day things they are today. You can't do both of them, but you can just decide not to fight about them. Right? If there's not a Bible verse. Because dad's never happy when the kids are fighting in the back seat, no matter what, it's over. When my kids were young, we're driving along on vacation, and whack, and one's crying, and like, what's up? He hit me. Well, what'd you do? I hit him back twice. Oh, good, go for it. Okay. I don't care what they did. I have a way, we have a way of responding in our house. Does this make sense to you? Okay. Now, here's the next one. Courage. Courage. And this is very important because if you only have this, if I stop the message right now and we didn't read the rest of Daniel, it sounds like we roll over on everything. And I want to make crystal clear, we don't roll over when God has drawn the line, but let's not draw our own lines. That's the difference, okay? So let's pick up courage. Verse 8. But Daniel resolved not to defile himself with a royal food and wine. And he asked, circle, highlight, underline that phrase. He asked politely and kindly the chief official for permission not to defile himself this way. Well, let me stop right here and explain what's going on. It's a kosher diet. And uh, it was not a kosher diet that the king had. Now, Daniel didn't know much of the Bible. Gutenberg hadn't come along. He wasn't reading it and journaling every day. Uh, he only knew what he had been taught. Uh, Israel, uh, the nation, and Jerusalem were in such spiritual darkness. That's why God allowed the judgment he had said was going to happen. But even in the darkest, darkest days of lack of knowledge of God's 613 laws, uh, uh, 10 of which we call the Ten Commandments, there were some they always knew. Little boys are circumcised on the eighth day. You don't bow down to idols, and you keep a kosher diet which lo and behold, later on, his buddies won't bow down uh, and, and on this kosher diet. He knows, no, this is wrong. But he politely asked, but we're going to see he stands his ground. Verse 9, now God had caused the official to show favor and compassion to Daniel. Verse 10, but the official told Daniel, I'm afraid of my Lord, the king, who has assigned you your food and drink. Why should he see you looking worse than the other young men your age? The king would have my head because of you. Now, don't miss Daniel's good relationship with his captures, okay? Verse 11, Daniel then said to the guard, he didn't, it, you know, it, it doesn't say, Daniel threw a conniption fit and went on a hunger strike. No. <laughs> he just figured out another way of kindly and politely. If the top guy won't do it, maybe the guard will let me. So in verse 11, he said to the guard whom the chief official had appointed over Daniel, Hananiah, Michelle, and Azura, please, circle, highlight, underline, Test, not, I'm not doing this. Test your servants for 10 days. Give us nothing but vegetables to eat and water to drink, and then compare our appearance with that of young men who eat the royal food. And then we're willing to accept whatever happens. Treat your servants in accordance with what you see. So it's no big deal. So we agreed to this and tested them for 10 days. Well, at the end of the 10 days, they look healthier and better nourished than any of the young men who ate the royal food. Now I want to stop right here. It cracks me up that people read this and think, I'm going to go on a Daniel diet of vegetables and lose weight. Because in this day and age, a six-pack, what you want, right? In that day and age, who had the six-pack? Who were the skinny people? The slaves and the workers. 
You ever seen old pictures of antiquity? Everybody's a little bit of a doughboy, plumped out, right? So actually in the Hebrew, this passage says, and they, uh, it, it, it literally says, and they were fatter and better nourished. So this is my favorite verse in the whole Bible. <laughs> so actually he didn't get a six pack, he gained six pounds. And they said, oh, looks healthy, you know, grandma on the cheek or whatever it would be. So in verse 16, the guard took away their choice food and, and the wine they were to drink and gave them vegetables instead. And to these four young men, God gave knowledge and understanding of all kinds of literature and learning, astrology and the cult. And Daniel could understand also visions and dreams of all kinds. You see, submission is never blind when God's law is crystal clear. We must do what he says. And those, that, I'm, I want you to walk away seeing the two sides of the coin in your family gatherings, in your workplace, in the political arena we live in, and all of these other things. If God doesn't have a verse, figure the peace, uh, a path of peace and wisdom. If God has a verse, stand firm, politely and kindly, without an attitude, and then accept what happens. We live in the strangest day. Everybody wants to be courageous and have a cause and take a stand without any consequences. Right? And let me pick politically, and I'm going to go left and right. It's exactly the same thing. On the left, man, we're protesting, we're doing this, and we're doing that. What do you mean you're throwing me in jail? And then over on the right, we have the same exact thing. Now I'm standing up for that. What do you mean I lost my job? What do you mean you're throwing me in jail? And so it's a whole culture. We love to see it in this side or this side or other people. It's a whole culture where we all want to be courageous, but none of us want the consequences of courage. And courageous talk without the consequences is bravado. It is not courage. Man, I am so tired of people coming into my office saying, I stood up for God and something bad happened. I go like, dude, have you read the Bible? You see what, I mean, Daniel was like, that's why God said print it. It's so weird. Like, let that go. Oh, stand firm in this, but stand firm politely and kindly. Bizarre. But it's the secret to being where God wants us to be. Um, and here's the last one. It's respect. Throughout this entire thing, Daniel, I've been showing you, was so incredibly respectful. Why? Because they were made in the image of God, not because they deserve respect, because God said, give respect. Okay? Verse 18, now we pick it up. At the end of the time set by the king to bring them into his service, the chief official presented them to Nebuchadnezzar, and the king talked with them. And he found none equal to Daniel, Hananiah, Michelle, and Azariah, top of the class. So they entered the king's service, Nebuchadnezzar's administration. And in every manner of wisdom and understanding about which the king questioned them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and enchanters in the whole kingdom, the previous valedictorians. And Daniel remained there until the first year of King Cyrus, about 70 years. He knew he was going to win. So he could let things go that I would never want to let go. And he could take the consequences when God had spoken absolutely clearly. 
in every reaction. He was always incredibly respectful. Here's a couple of things you might want to jot down. Daniel served a demon-worshiping king so well he kept getting promoted. Is that not bizarre? I mean, we live in a day and age wherever somebody is politically, if somebody were to serve in the administration on the other side well enough to be promoted, we'd question whether they're really a Christian. And Daniel's going, you know, no, I'm really a God follower. And I'm rising up higher and higher and higher so that I will actually have some influence. And later on, he has the opportunity because he's risen so high that he's, Nebuchadnezzar is trying to figure this out. And he says, man, none of this magical work. I know it better than everybody else. It doesn't work. Let me tell you about the God most high. And he did. And, and, and let me show you how the depth of this respect. Uh, at one point, Nebuchadnezzar, remember, this is a bad dude, Okay. But he stood on the walls of Jerusalem. We looked over at um, Jerusalem, uh, Babylon. He said, is this not the great Babylon? I have created for my glory, by my strength and my power. And God says, done, absolutely done. Mic drop. You are now going to have mental illness and live like a wild animal for one year. And do you know who gets to uh, give him that uh, information? Daniel. Here's how I would have done it. Nebuchadnezzar comes with a dream and says, what's it mean? I would have said, Neb, baby. I've been praying for this for a long time. And I'm thrilled to tell you. But you know what he says, actually? My Lord if only the dream applied to your enemies. And you'll see this over and over and over as we read through the book. We can survive. We can thrive. We can make a difference if we will run his plays. But we can't expect God to back our play if we won't run his play. And I really encourage you this next week, not just like, oh, that was a good story, that was this. Take these four things, look at them through there, and then step back and ask in your own life, God, where have I been calling audibles? And where do I need to step back and run your play? And I wanna, I wanna tie this all together with some encouragement because your impact is so much greater than you think. No one would have ever guessed this young 16-year-old guy on his way there, castrated, who has no legacy of his family and all that kind of stuff, no one ever guessed him to be a guy we'd be talking about thousands of years later. Like, what? You matter way more than you think. And God might use you as a Daniel. God might use you in a different way, but he will use you if you run his play. I learned the power of this on a family vacation, I want to tell you about. Any of you have been to Carlsbad Caverns? Help me out. Okay. Um, we were going there. What you need to know about this story, though, a uh, very important part is my wife is claustrophobic. Now, she's not crazy claustrophobic, but you can see crazy from where she is. And uh, 
So I know she's going to stay up in the visitor center while we go down and do the thing. If you've ever been there, it's a huge visitor center, massive elevator. The first cave you go down to is a huge room. And so she shocks me. She says, hey, I think I'll go down with you guys. How cool is that? We get down there. She's just like, ah, I think I'll go on the tour with you. I'm going, thank you, Jesus. It's amazing. So we're waiting in line to get our tickets. And two dudes walk out. And one says the other, that was so cool when they turned the lights out. Now I got a dilemma. Do I tell her or not? So I didn't. (laughs) But she heard. So she looks at me and goes, they turned the lights out? I said, hon, hon, don't worry. It's, it's, It's just for a second or two. Are you sure? Trust me, I'm a pastor. So we go on the tour. If you've been on it, everything's great. At the very end, they set you on some logs and they unplug it to show you how dark it is. Can't see even hand in front of your face. 1001, 1002, 1008, 1009. And then a bat bit me like, ah, I could feel the blood. And then the bat spoke. It said, I will never trust you again. Now, in my profession, that's the problem. And then it hit me. My oldest son had got the first iteration of those Timex Indiglow lights. You know, you push the button and and you could see it at night. Well, that light was so weeny and so lame that when he took it home in Oceanside the first night, he dad, dad, I had to come in. He'd push the button. You couldn't see what time it is. So we had to get a flashlight to see what time it was. But I'm desperate. In the darkness of that cave, I said, Nathan, push the button on your watch. And he did. And we could suddenly see the ground and feet. The bat let go. My marriage was saved. And I learned an incredibly important lesson. The darker it gets, the brighter the tiniest of lights shines. That watch couldn't tell us what time it was in Oceanside at night, but it could have led us out of that cave. You matter. You matter. Push the buttons he's asked you to push. Don't talk about his sovereignty. Live within his sovereignty. Decide with wisdom. Have the courage to do the right thing. Always respectful and see what Jesus does. Father, I pray that you would take these things that we have looked at and you would speak to our hearts and you would speak to our minds, not for other people what they need to hear, but what we need to hear. May we use this as a mirror, not binoculars. And show us, be it at home, at work, in our community, our our feeling about things outside of our control. Show us what it means to be Daniel-like. So you can be God-like in our life. In the name of Jesus, amen.